one chapter four of the life of john ruskin by w g collingwood this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox dot org the life of john ruskin by w g collingwood book one the boy poet eighteen nineteen to eighteen forty two chapter four mountain warship eighteen thirty to eighteen thirty five recording by cheyenne arrowsmith critiques who are least disposed to give ruskin credit for his artistic doctrines or economical theories unite in allowing that he taught his generation to look at nature and especially at the subliming nature at storms and sunrises and forests and snows of the alps this mission of mountain worship was the outcome of a passion beside which the other interests and occupations of his youth were only toys he could take up his mineralogy and his moralizing and lay them down but the love of mountain scenery was something beyond his control we have seen him leave his heart in the highlands at three years old we have now to follow his passionate pilgrimages to skiddle and snowdon to the jeanfrau and mont blanc they had planned a great tour through the lakes and the north two years before but were stopped at plymouth by the news of mrs richardson's death at last the plan was carried out a prose diary was written alternately by john and mary one carrying it on when the other tired with rather curious effect of unequally yoked collaboration we read how they set off from london at seven o'clock on tuesday morning the eighteenth of may and thenceforward we are spared no detail the furniture of the inns the bills of fare when they got out of the carriage and walked how they lost their luggage what they thought of colleges and the chapels music and may races at oxford of shakespeare's tomb and the pink factory at birmingham we have a complete guide-book to blenheim and warwick castle to haddon and chatsworth and a full itinerary of derbyshire matlock bath we read is a most delightful place but after an enthusiastic description of hightour john reacts into bethel's with a minute description of wetting the shoes in a puddle the carven with a bengal light was fairyland to him and among the minerals he was quite at home then they hurried north to windermere once at lowood the excitement thickens with storms and rainbows mountains and waterfalls boats on the lake and a coaching on the steep roads this journey through lakeland is described in a galloping anapests of the eateriad which was simply the prose journal versified on his return one of the few enterprises of the sort which were really completed 
To readers who know the country, it is interesting as giving a detailed account in a days when this nook of English ground was secure from rash assault. One learns that even then there were jarring sights at Bonis Bay and along the Wentworth shore. Elements unkind and bills exorbitant. Coniston especially was dreary with rain, and its inn, the old waterhead, now destroyed, extravagantly dear. But says John, with his eye for mineral specimens, it contains several rich copper mines. An interesting touch is the hero worship with which they went reverently to peep at Southey and Wordsworth in church, too humble to dream of an introduction and too polite to besiege the poets in their homes, but independent enough to form their own opinions on the personality of the heroes. They did not like the look of Wordsworth at all. Southey, they adored. The dominant note of the tour is, however, an ecstatic delight in the mountain scenery. On Skiddaw and the Helvellyn, all the gamut of admiration is lavished. On returning home, John began Greek under Doctor Andrews, and was soon versifying Anacreontics in his notebooks. He began to read Byron for himself, with what result we shall see before long. But the most important new departure was the attempt to copy Cruikshank's etchings to Grimm's fairy tales, his real beginning at art. From this practice, he learned the value of the pure, clean line that expresses form. It is a good instance of the authority of these early years over Ruskin's whole life, and teaching that in his elements of drawing. He advised the young artists to begin with Cruikshank, as he began, and that he wrote appreciatively both of the stories and the etchings so many decades afterwards in the preface to a reprint by J. C. Houghton. His cousin's sister Mary had been sent to a day school when Mrs. Ruskin's lessons were superseded by Doctor Andrews. And she had learned enough drawing to attempt a view of the hotel at Matlock, a thing which John could not do. So now that he too showed some power of neat draughtsmanship, it was felt that he ought to have her advantages. They got Mister Runciman, the drawing master, chosen. It may be. As a relative of the well-known Edinburgh artist of the same name, to give him lessons in the early part of eighteen thirty-one. His teaching was of the kind which preceded the Harding-esque. It aimed at a bold use of the soft pencil, with a certain roundness of composition and richness of texture, a conventional, right way of drawing anything. This was hardly what John wanted, but not to be beaten, he facsimiled the master's free hand in a sort of engraver stipple, which his habitual neatness helped him to do in perfection. Ronciman soon put a stop to that, and took pains with a pupil who took such pains with himself, 
taught him, at any rate, the principles of perspective, and remained his only drawing master for several years. A sample of John Ruskin's early lessons in drawing, described by him in letters to his father, may be not without interest. On February the twentieth, eighteen thirty-two, he writes. You saw the two models that were last sent before you went away. Well, I took my paper, and I fixed my points, and I drew my perspective, and then, as Mister Runciman told me, I began to invent a scene. You remember the cottage that we saw as we went to Bradydo near Mitre Rock. Where the old woman lived, whose grandson went with us to the fall so very silently, I thought my model resembled that. So I drew a tree, such a tree, such an enormous fella, and I sketched the waterfall with its dark rocks and its luxuriant wood and its high mountains, and then I examined one of Mary's pictures to see. How the rocks were done, and another to see how the woods were done, and another to see how the mountains were done, and another to see how the cottages were done, and I patched them all together, and I made such a lovely scene. Oh, I should get such a scold from Mister Runciman, that is, if he ever scolded. After the next lesson, he wrote. February the twenty seventh, eighteen thirty two. You know the beautiful model drawing that I gave you an account of in my last. I showed it to Mister Runciman. He contemplated it for a moment in silence, and then turning, asked me if I had copied. I told him how I had patched it up, but he said that that was not copying. And although he was not satisfied with the picture, he said there was something in it that would make him totally change the method he had hitherto pursued with me. He then asked Mary for some grey paper, which was produced. Then inquired if I had a colour box. I produced the one you gave me, and he then told me he should begin with a few of the simplest colours. In order to teach me better the effect of light and shade, he should then proceed to teach me watercolor painting, but the latter only as a basis for oil. This last, however, to use his own words, all in due time. Oh, if I could paint well before we went to Dover, I should have such sea pieces. In March eighteen thirty-four, Ronsman was encouraging him in his oil painting, but a year later, he wrote to his father, "I cannot bear to painting oil sea fieldings tints alone for me. The other costs me double toil, and wants some fifty coats to be splashed on each spot successively, foul, vestinct." I can't bring out with all a picture fit to see. My bladders burst, my oils are out, and then what's all the work about?
After a few lessons, he could rival Mary. When they went for their summer excursion, he set to work at once at Stephen Oakes to draw cottages. At Dover and Battle, he attempted castles. It may be that these first sketches are of the pre-Ranciman period, but the Ruskings made the round of Kent in eighteen thirty-one, and though the drawings are by no means in a master's style, they show some practice in using the pencil. The journey was extended by the old route, conditioned by business as before, round the south coast to the west of England, and then into Wales. There, his powers of drawing failed him. Moonlight on Snowdon was too vague a subject for the black lead point, but a hint of it could be conveyed in rhyme. Folding like an airy vest. The very clouds had sunk to rest. Light gilds the rugged mountain's breast, calmly as they lay below. Every hill seemed topped with snow, as the flowing tide of light broke the slumbers of the night. Harling Castle was too sublime for a sketch, but it was painted with the pen. So mighty, so majestic, and so long, and all thy music now the ocean's murmuring, and the enthusiasm of mountain glory, a sort of、uh, ecstasy of uncontrollable passion, strives for articulate deliverance in the climbing song. I love ye, ye eternal hills. It was hard to come back to the daily round, the common task, especially when, in this autumn of eighteen thirty-one, to Doctor Andrews' Latin and Greek, the French grammar and Euclid were added under Mister Robertum, and the new tutor had no funny stories to tell. He was not so engaging a man as the dear doctor. And his memory was not sweet to his wayward pupil, but the parents had chosen for the work, one who was favourably known by his manuals, and capable of interesting even a budding poet in the mathematics. For our author tells that at Oxford and ever after he knew his Euclid without the figures. And that he spent all his spare time in trying to triangulate an angle. An old letter from Robertum informs Mister J. J. Ruskin that an eminent mathematician had seen John's attempt, and had said that it was the cleverest he knew. In French too, he progressed enough to be able to find his way along in Paris two years later. And however the saucy boy may have satirised his tutor in the droll verses on bedtime, Mister Robertson always remembered him with affection, and spoke of him with respect. In spite of these tedious tutorships, he managed to scribble energetically all this winter, writing with amazing rapidity, as his mother notes. Attempts at Waverley novels, which never got beyond the first chapter, imitations of Childe Harold and Don Juan, 
and scraps in the style of everyone in turn. No wonder his mother sent him to bed at nine punctually, and kept him from school in vain efforts to quiet his brain. The lack of companions was made up to him in a friendship of Richard Fall, son of a neighbour on the hill, a boy without affectation or mobility of disposition, whose complimentary character suited him well. An affectionate comradeship sprung up between the two lads, and lasted until, in middle life, they drifted apart in no ill will, but each going on his own course to his own destiny. Some real advance was made this winter, eighteen thirty-one to thirty-two, with his Shelleyan sonnet to a cloud and his imitations of Byron's Hebrew melodies. From which he learned how to concentrate expression, and to use rich vowel sounds and liquid consonants with rolling effect—a deeper and a more serious turn of thought that gradually usurped the place of the first boyish effervescence has been traced by him to the influence of Byron, in whom, while others saw nothing more than wit and passion, Ruskin perceived an earnest mind. And a sound judgment, but the most sincere poem, if sincerity be marked by unstudied phrase and a neglected rhyme, the most genuine lyrical cry of this period, is that song in which our boy poet poured forth his longing for the blue hills he had loved as a baby, and for those coniston crags over which. When he became old and sorely stricken, he was still to see the morning break. When he wrote these verses, he was nearly fourteen, or just past his birthday. It had been eighteen months since he had been in Wales, and all the weary while he had seen no mountains. But in his regrets, he goes back a year farther still to fix upon the Lakeland Hills. Less majestic than Snowdon, but more endeared, and he describes his sensations on approaching the beloved objects in the very terms that Dante uses for his first sight of Beatrice. I weary for the fountain foaming, for shady home and hill. My mind is on the mountain roaming, my spirit's voice is still. The crags are long on Coniston, and Glaramara's dale, and dreary on the mighty one. The cloud enwreathed the sea fell. There is a thrill of strange delight that passes quivering over me, when blue hills rise upon the sight like summer clouds before me. Judge then. Of the delight with which he turned over the pages of a new book, given him the birthday by the kind Mister Telford, in whose carriage he had first seen those blue hills, a book in which all his mountain ideals and more were caught and kept enshrined, visions still and of mightier peaks and ampler valleys, romantically tossed and sublimely lost. As he had so often written in his favourite rhymes, 
in the vignettes to Rogers, Italy, Turner had touched a chord for which John Ruskin had been feeling all these years. No wonder that he took Turner for his leader and master, and fondly tried to copy the wonderful Alps at daybreak to begin with, and then to imitate this new-found magic art with his own subjects, and finally to come boldly before the world in passionate defence of a man. Who had done such great things for him? This mountain warship was not inherited from his father, who never was enthusiastic about peaks and clouds and glaciers, though he was interested in all travelling, in a general way. So that it was not Rogers, Italy, that sent the family off to the Alps that summer, but fortunately for John. His father's eye was caught by the romantic architecture of proud sketches in Flanders and Germany, when it came out in April eighteen fifty-three, and his mother proposed to make both of them happy in a tour on the continent. The business round was abandoned, but they could see Mr. Domecq on their way back through Paris, and not wholly lose the time. They waited to keep Papa's birthday on May the tenth, and early next morning drove off. Father and mother, John and Mary, Nurse Anne, and Courier Salvador. They crossed to Calais and posted, as people did in the old times, slowly from point to point, starting betimes, halting at the roadside inns, where John tried to snatch a sketch. Reaching the destination early enough to investigate the cathedral or the citadel, monuments of antiquity or achievements of modern civilization, with impartial eagerness, and before bedtime, John would write up his journal and work up his sketches just as if he were at home. So they went through Flanders and Germany, following Proud's lead by the castles of the Rhine. But at last, at Schaffhausen one Sunday evening, suddenly, behold, beyond, they had seen the Alps. Thenceforward, Turner was their guide as they crossed the Splugen, sailed the Italian lakes, wandered at Milan Cathedral and the Mediterranean at Genoa, and then roamed through the Oberland and back to Chamonix. All this while, a great plan shaped itself in the boy's head, no less than to make a Rogers Italy for himself, just as he tried to make a Hurry and Lucy or a Dictionary of Minerals. On every place they passed, he would write verses and prose sketches to give respectively the romance and reality or ridicule. For he saw the comic side of it all keenly, and he would illustrate the series with Turneresque vignettes, drawn with the finest the croquet pen, to imitate the delicate engravings. By this he learned more drawing in two or three years than most amateur students do in seven. For the first year he had the watchtower of Andernach. And Jungfrau from Interlaken to show, with others of similar style, 
and thenceforward alternated between Turner and Proud, until he settled into something different from either. But Turner and Proud were not the only artists he knew. At Paris, he found his way into the Louvre and got leave from the directors, though he was under the age required to copy. The picture he chose was a Rembrandt. Between this foreign tour and the next, his amusement was to draw these vignettes and to write the poems suggested by the scenes he had visited. He had outgrown the evening lessons with Dr. Andrews, and as he was fifteen, it was time to think more seriously of preparing him for Oxford, where his name was put down at Christ Church. His father hoped he would go into the church and eventually turn out a combination of Byron and a bishop, something like Dean Milman, only better. For this, college was a necessary preliminary. For college, some little schooling. So they picked the best day school in the neighborhood, that of the Reverend Thomas Dale, afterwards Dean of Rochester, in Grow Lane, Peckham. John Ruskin worked there rather less than two years. In 1835, he was taken from school in consequence of an attack of pleurisy and lost the rest of that year from regular studies. More interesting to him than school was the British Museum collection of minerals, where he worked occasionally with his Jamieson's Dictionary. By this time, he had a fair student's collection of his own, and he increased it by picking up specimens at Matlock or Clifton or in the Alps, wherever he went, for he was not short of pocket money. He took the greatest pains over his catalogues and wrote elaborate accounts of the various minerals in a shorthand he invented out of Greek letters and crystal forms. Grafted on this mineralogy, and stimulated by the Swiss tour, was a new interest in physical geology, which his father so far approved as to give him Saussure's Voyage dans les Alpes for his birthday in 1834. In this book, he found the complement of Turner's vignettes, something like a key to the reason why of all the wonderful forms and the marvellous mountain architecture of the Alps. He soon wrote a short essay on the subject, and I had the pleasure of seeing it in print. In Loudon's magazine of natural history for March 1834, along with another bit of his writing, asking for information on the course of the colour of the Rhine water. He had already some acquaintance with J. C. Loudon, F. L. S., H. S., etc., and he was on the staff of that versatile editor not long afterwards and took a lion's share of the writing in a magazine of architecture. Meanwhile, he had been introduced to another editor and to the publishers with whom he did business for many a year to come. The acquaintance was made in a curious, accidental manner. His cousin, Charles Richardson, clerk to Smith, Elder and Co., 
had the opportunity of mentioning the young poet's name to Thomas Pringle, editor of the Friendship's Offering, which John had admired and imitated. Mr. Pringle came out to Hernhill and was hospitably entertained as a brother Scot, as not only an editor but a poet himself, not only a poet but a man of respectability and piety, who had been a missionary in South Africa. In return for this hospitality, he gave a good report of John's verses. And after getting him to rewrite two of the best passages in the last tour, carried them off for insertion in his forthcoming number. He did more; he carried John to see the actual Samuel Rogers, whose verses had been adorned by the great Turner's vignettes. After the prurity of April eighteen thirty-five, his parents took him abroad again. And he made great preparations to use the opportunity to the utmost. He would study geology in the field, and took sauceur in his trunk. He would note meteorology. He made a cyanometer, a scale of blue to measure the depth of tongue, the color whether of Rhine water or of Alpine skies. He would sketch. By now he had abandoned the desire to make MS albums after seeing himself in print, and so chose rather to imitate the imitable and to follow Prout, this time with careful outlines on the spot, than to idealize his notes in mimic Turnerism. He kept a prose journal, chiefly of geology and scenery, as well as a versified description. Written in a meter imitated from Don Juan, but more elaborate and somewhat of a, a tour de force in rhyming. But that poetical journal was dropped after he had carried it through France, across the Jura, and to Chamonix. The drawing crowded it out, and for the first time he found himself as ready with his pencil as he had been with his pen. His route is marked by the drawings of that year, from Chamonix to the Zang Bernat and Auster, back to the Oberland, and up the Zang Gotthard, then back again to Lucerne and round by the Stevio to Venice and Verona, and finally through the Tyrol and Germany homewards. The ascent of the Zang Bernat was told in a dramatic sketch of great humor and a power of characterization, and a letter to Richard Fall records the night on the Rigi, when he saw the splendid sequence of storm, sunset, moonlight, and daybreak, which forms the subject of one of the most impressive passages of modern painters. It happened that Pringle had a plate of Salzburg, which he wanted to print in order to make up the volume of Friendship's Offering for the next Christmas. He seems to have asked John Ruskin to furnish a copy of verses for the picture, and at Salzburg, accordingly, a bit of rhymed description was written and rewritten, and sent home to the editor. Early in December. The Ruskins returned, and at Christmas there came to Hernhill 
a gorgeous gilt morocco volume, to John Ruskin from the publishers. On opening it, there were his Ondenak and Zangoa, and his Zausburg, opposite a beautifully engraved plate. All hills, towers, boats, and figures moving picturesquely under the sunset, in Turner's manner, more or less. Engraved by E. Goodall, from a drawing by W. Purser. It was almost like being Mister Rogers himself. End of book one, chapter four. Recording by Cheyenne Arrowsmith.